morning. Have you ever uh, met anybody who's just a little bit uh, too confident, a little too assured of themselves? Um, and maybe, maybe just be a little bit better if they just uh, not say anything. I thought that it's kind of hard to admit that if, if you ever actually felt that way. Um, I wanted to read a story that most of you have already read, most of you know about pretty well, and it's like a kid's story at this point. And sometimes I wonder about the kids' stories in the Bible, and maybe they're a lot more profound, a lot more deep than, than we uh, think they are, and we kind of just say, oh, that's a kid's story. I already know that story. I already know the lesson. Um, so I was kind of reading this story, just going over it and like trying to read the actual words. Um, and I, I don't know, I mean, I, I kind of got a lesson from it that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and I'm not saying it's like the only lesson you can get from it or it's totally correct, but I thought it was kind of interesting. So I'm not going to read the whole story because it's a really long story. It's uh, Joseph and his whole ordeal with his brothers. Um, and it's about five chapters long, so I'm only going to read the first one. And then I'm going to try to talk about a little bit of some stuff in there that I thought was interesting. So it's Genesis 37. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. So I don't really know. I assume that coat is pretty ornamental, pretty decorative, pretty special. Something to keep in mind. And when his brethren saw their father, loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So I thought that was pretty important. You know, they, they, it says right away that they hated his, their, their brother. Um, that, that might become a little bit more important later. And Jesus did say that uh, any man that hates his brother is guilty of murder. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaf stood around about and made obeisance to my sheaf. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream, and told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brother envied him, but his father observed the saying. I thought that was pretty important. You know, I, I'd never really realized that everyone is against Joseph at this point. You know, even his father and his mother. He might have, in his, in his heart and his head, held back and said, you know, he might have some point here. But publicly, and to all his brothers, he said, he, he mocked him, he rebuked him. And it says they envied him. And they were accusing him of hubris, of excessive self-assurance. But sometimes I wonder if there's a difference. You know, like, it's kind of hard to tell. Is this person acting hubristically, or am I just envious? It seems like there's a little bit of confusion there. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem, 
And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. So that's just a little, why did they include that? I thought about that for a while. Well, in the beginning of the chapter, it says they dwelt in a land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And here Joseph, wearing his expensive ornamental coat, walks out into the wilderness to find his brothers. He's wandering aimlessly. He doesn't know where he is. He's clearly lost. He comes upon some strange stranger who has no reason to not just uh, kill Joseph and take his nice coat. But he doesn't. He, he's, he's nice to him. He tells him where his brothers went. He says, I saw him pass through. Now when his brothers, they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to slay him. So they, had, they already hated him. Now they're, before they even have a chance to talk to him, to see why he's coming to them, they decide they're going to kill him. Now it's kind of implied that Reuben isn't really there because here later it says, and Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto him, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So I, I read that verse like five times this morning. I think it's really easy to read in there that Reuben is totally innocent, and I'm just not sure. Um, he doesn't really stop him. He says, throw him in this pit. Well, it kind of implies the pit was empty. There's no water in it. It kind of implies it was a well. It was a dry well. A well is pretty deep. If you throw somebody in a dry well, they'll probably be injured, if, the, if not die. So I thought that was kind of a unique aspect. Plus, you know, this is before Leviticus, before the law and all that, but Cain and Abel had already kind of happened, and there's some, it, there's some reference to law and commandments in Genesis before this point, so I wasn't really sure what law and commandments they're referring to in Genesis, but um, there must have been some sort of ideas, and so I wonder about whether or not he was concerned with purity and about not getting blood on his hands, um, and that's kind of why they stoned people, too, outside the gates of the city to avoid getting corruption on them and on, in, the, in the city. So I was curious about that. And he does say he's going to come back and deliver him to his father again. It doesn't, he does say he doesn't want to kill him. But it does imply that he's, he's willing to go along with their plans and beat him up a little bit at the very least. So, and it came to pass when Joseph was coming to his brethren that they stripped Joseph out of his coat his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into the pit, the pit that was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites come from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. So it doesn't say again, but clearly Reuben has left at this point because he will come back. And clearly the brothers have not decided to just let Joseph away, they've come back to kill him without their brother Reuben because they bring it back up. He says, come, let us, 
And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. So I think we pretty much know the rest of the story, and that's a few, those are the points that I really wanted to make. There's another couple of points that are pretty interesting that I didn't catch when I was a kid, you know, um, that they, they killed a goat, and they dipped the coat in blood. I think there's something there. You know, it's easy to just read this and just say this is an analogy for Jesus, and that's correct, but it's also something that actually happened to somebody named Joseph. So I thought that's important too. And I think there's a lot of lessons in there about whether we're really uh, righteous and whether this other person is really uh, excessively self-confident that we think they are. Um, And I I think that I, I like to put some analogy between Reuben and Peter um, and, and Jesus. Uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. He, all the apostles abandon Jesus. Um, and all the nations are united against Jesus. And it's a very similar situation. All, the, all of his brothers are united against him. Even his father and mother reproach him. So, I don't know. I think there's just a lot to think about there. And that's what I wanted to say this morning. So, um, I think, Mike, I'm going to have you pray. Um, if we want to have any uh, prayer requests. Jerry's wife here is not doing well at all. Jerry Garber's wife is not doing well.
Welcome this morning. Thank you for coming to the house of God. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I studied for a message this week and it just didn't seem to be quite right for this week. So um, I apologize to those of you that were at retreat. We're going to have an edited version of one of the lectures. Um, a few months ago, I talked here out of Ephesians chapter 6. And a couple weeks after that message, I got the topic for retreat, and it was the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And so we, we gave some lectures there out of that. And this morning, we're going to talk on the helmet of salvation. So maybe, uh, maybe in a couple weeks, the message on friends will be, uh, we'll see what the Lord has in store, but it didn't, didn't come this morning. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, verses 3 through 5, says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We don't fight with sticks and stones. We don't fight with guns and fists. These, this is a spiritual battle that we're in, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That last verse there speaks of some of the protection of the helmet of salvation, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you have a helmet? Spiritually speaking, are you wearing the helmet of salvation? You know, on one hand, there are what might be called spiritual streakers running around with nothing but the helmet of salvation on, so to speak. And on the other hand, you could be doing everything right and yet not have the helmet of salvation. As Billy Sunday says, going to church every Sunday doesn't make anyone a Christian any more than going to a garage makes an automobile. <clears throat> So we're going to read from Ephesians 6 again, if you want to turn there, Ephesians 6 beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and when I read that verse, first of all, it says the whole armor. It says to put it all on. It's not something we pick and choose. But, but it says stand against the wiles of the devil. And that, that wording speaks of trickery. It doesn't speak of power. It's strategic. It's cunning. That's what Satan is. He is not powerful. But he is 
tricky, he is deceptive, and that's how he tries to trip us up. He doesn't really have that much power in our life. You know, his biggest power is deception. His biggest power in our life is confusion. If he can get us to be confused, he, he preys on our weaknesses because he doesn't have the strength to, to overcome. From the very beginning, back in the Garden of Eden, with Eve, he said, did God really say? Causing confusion. Causing us to question truth. And that is where Satan's power so often lies. He really doesn't have strength. He is strategic. He is cunning. The Bible uses lots of words for how Satan operates. And here it uses the word wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This world, this life that we live is a battlefield, and we have one enemy, and it's Satan, and it's not each other. It's not our co-workers, it's not our parents or our siblings, it's not our teachers or all of the people that can be frustrating in life can feel like the enemy oftentimes, but the truth is that they are not our enemy, they are simply, they may be being used by the enemy. They may have been ensnared by the enemy, but we need to not see each other as the enemy, but see the true enemy. First Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh around seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. So it doesn't matter what you want to call him. He's got many names throughout the Bible. He is our enemy. But the Bible says that through God we can resist Him. We are given everything we need to live godly in Christ Jesus. Peter says, His divine power hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So don't ever believe that Satan is powerful in your life. He's tricky. He causes confusion. But the power is often what we give him. <clears throat> so don't believe the lie that you can't change, that you can't overcome, and that you can't live victoriously. He goes on, verse 13. Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation. This verse, you can find these words in Isaiah chapter 59, 17, where it's speaking of God and it says that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. That is the, the armor that God, was, God is wearing as he fights. And he gives us the same armor. What are helmets used for?
We use them at work, don't we? Prevent things from falling on our heads. They use them in football and baseball. And they, pre they protect a very vital part of our body, our brain. Um, they use it, we use them riding motorcycles or bicycles. There's lots of times helmets are used, but they're, they're definitely never more important than in battle. They're used in battle. This is similar to a Roman helmet. I had the red thing that went on top, but I lost a piece to it. And, you know, this is, this is a pretty significant helmet. Doesn't quite fit me. Um, it's really pretty advanced. I mean, you, th you see that? Your neck's protected from behind. Your ears are protected. Your face is pretty well protected. This is a vital piece when a Roman soldier went into battle. A Christian soldier needs to wear a helmet for the same reasons. To protect our head, to protect our mind taking into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I think so many times we're weak because our faith is immature or weak. It's often rooted in how we feel. And you know, there's no victory in how you feel. Because sometimes you feel like a Christian and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you feel like going to church and some days you don't. Some days you feel like praying and some days you don't. And if we operate based on our feelings, we don't operate well, do we? Do you base your faith on how you feel? Real faith is not based on feelings. We've got to wear this helmet of salvation so that our faith can keep operating based upon what we know to be true even while we have to wait for our feelings to catch up with what we know. Thessalonians talks about the helmet. And there he uses it like this. He says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Does that sound different to you? The hope of salvation than the helmet of salvation? How do you hear that word hope? That uh, in the Bible, it is a very secure thing. It is a very, it's something that is going to happen. Hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just a desire. Hope is a divine expectation. It's a confident assurance. It is certain. We can stand firm by living in the assurance of salvation. When you know that you are saved by faith through grace and that not of yourselves, nothing to do with us, nothing to do with how I feel, or how capable or good I am.
when you know this, it, it frees you to continue to live even in difficult times. This assurance is not based on feelings, it's based on truth. And it can be easy to preach. It's easy to stand here and to say, don't let your feelings affect your faith. It's easy for you to sit here and even agree that, yes, that's what I need to do. But this week, your feelings are going to come. And they're going to be real. And how are we going to allow them to inform our actions? It's hard to live that faith in the day-to-day. Because our thoughts inform our emotions or our feelings. And so often our feelings inform our actions. So what are we thinking about? Oh, maybe an example of this hope could be being engaged to be married. Yeah, anybody want to get married today? Uh, but when you're engaged to be married, you're uh, like you have a hope. You are planning to be married. And there's really nothing that can stop you at that point. You have, you've committed to each other. And, and what's going to stop that wedding from happening? Other than a decision by you that you don't want to get married after all. You know, th- this hope is, is even more certain than that, I would say. But that, that's really, and we'll talk about that actually a little more here. That that's really the only way that that engagement ends. So, this helmet that the Roman soldier would have wore, you know, this is, this is a well-designed helmet. A lot of them wouldn't have been this way. Um, you know, before this time, maybe they would have wrapped their head in cloth or in leather to protect themselves from the blows in battle. Um, this is not a comfortable thing to wear. It's heavy, but it's worth it to save your life, isn't it? I picture the helmet of salvation as being just as protective as this or more. It is complete protection when we have it on against the enemy. So what does this look like for us spiritually? This is what I know. If you have bowed your knee to Christ, if you have given Him your heart and your life, then you have been given this helmet. And it's an important piece to have. If you've been born again, you are protected. You are given assurance. Have you ever been hit in the head? I don't know of anyone here that's been severely, traumatically hit in the head. Maybe you have. I'm not thinking of you. I I was one time. um, We were actually camping with Bart. And uh, it was when I was young. I don't know if I was 12 or 10. I, I don't know. Maybe I was younger than that. And uh, something hit me in the head. And I turned around and Branton was standing there. And I punched him in the chest. And I said, what would you do that for? And then I passed out. 
briefly. And, you know, what a terrible way to, you know, pass out after just punching your friend. Um, but I got hit, and all I could do was respond, and he was the person standing there. It had to be him that did it, right? It wasn't him. It was someone that was about 30 foot away trying to skip a rock into the lake, and, and he missed badly. But, and I had blood running down my head, and it was, you know, it, it was kind of big deal. But, you know, I, I don't have any, well, maybe I have long-term damage, I don't know, but it didn't, didn't seem to change me too much. But it can. You know, getting hit in the head can severely impact the rest of your life. It can be very traumatic. Um, Satan, he wants to throw rocks at us or darts at us spiritually and when they hit us they can do pretty traumatic damage and if you're not wearing the helmet of salvation you're not protected and if you are you're given an incredible protection and I believe that when you commit your life to Christ at a young age you are given a protection that, that maybe I can't explain to you, maybe you don't even realize it during that time, but you're given a protection that you'll look back on one day and be so thankful for. This also offers an identity, you know, especially with that red thing on top, which I don't know that all of them had that on their helmet. That may have just been a positional thing. But it's, it's easy to tell who you're fighting for or against by, by the helmet oftentimes in battle. Well, I believe that this <clears throat> helmet of salvation offers protection against the thoughts that enter our mind. You know, there's a phrase that says, you are what you eat. And if you eat pizza and Coke and potato chips, you are probably going to be unhealthy. And if you eat vegetables and fruit and natural foods, you're going to feel better. It's just kind of the way it goes. Um, what about spiritually? What are we feeding ourselves? It's also true that you are who your friends are. Who you surround yourself with has a lot to do with who you become in life. But I think about the things that we pour into our minds and the things that when we wear the helmet of salvation, it protects our minds in many ways. And some of it is in our decision making, which goes along with the breastplate of righteousness, I believe. If we're wearing the breastplate of righteousness, that's, that's huge and, and not even gathering so many things into our mind. But, but this helmet of salvation is protection there too. What's the music that I'm listening to? You know, if it's um, angry music, I'm going to become a more angry person. If it's sensual music, I'm going to become, I'm going to be, it's going to deepen my sexual desires. If it's depressive music, it's going to deepen my fear. Uh, that's just kind of the way that it goes. Uh, the, the movies that we watch, you know, all the things that we put into our mind with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, 
it changes where we put ourselves in life and, and who we surround ourselves with and what we take into our mind. You know, I, I heard a story of a man who watched a movie, Jaws, and I haven't saw it, but I have saw the cover of it. It's got a big shark with big teeth. And he watched this movie, and he went on vacation. I think he was younger at that time. And he, uh, they had a swimming pool at their hotel. And that first day, he went and he jumped in the pool. And as soon as he hit the water, all he could think about was that shark. And he got out of the pool, and he didn't swim the rest of the vacation. And I think about... You know how ridiculous that seems. There was a 0% chance of a shark being in the hotel pool, right? And yet, the things that we feed our minds feed our fears. And sometimes it gets ridiculous. Because of the things that we're putting in to our mind, we begin to fear things that are never going to happen. There's, there's not a chance in the world. We allow negative thoughts and we begin to imagine a reality that doesn't exist. The longer you continue to feed your mind lies, the worse it will get. But you know, sometimes it just takes some small decisions in our daily life. Small changes, small things that I'm not going to listen to that or watch that. And those habits and those ruts that we get into can be difficult to get out of. And I realize that. But those small decisions, putting on, wearing this helmet of salvation, and making those little decisions can make huge changes in our life. So wear the helmet of, of salvation to protect your thoughts. You know, just to have received it's not enough. We've got to wear it. Sometimes the Roman soldiers would tie these to their belt as they would travel on their journeys. But I would submit to us that there's really not a time to remove this, spiritually speaking, because what happens when you get ambushed? You know, once you've been hit by a dart, it's a little late to put a helmet on. Too many times we wait till we're desperate to put on the armor. We wait till we're backed up against the wall to fight, and it always makes for a more difficult battle. Wear the helmet. Stand up and stand out. Stand for Jesus. Satan cannot take our helmet off. Only I can do that. Think about that for a moment. Satan does not have the power to take away your salvation. As you think about that statement... I want you to think about the difference between fellowship and relationship. We were at a Christmas Eve service last winter, and the pastor, Dave Sumrall, introduced this, this question you know, of the difference between a relationship and fellowship. And it really stuck out to me. You know, is there a difference? If you have a relationship with someone versus having fellowship with someone? You remember the account of Mary and Joseph when they took Jesus when he was 12 years old to a Passover in Jerusalem? And, you know, it must have been a big week. And 
No doubt they were busy, they were tired, there were a lot of people, um, but they headed home without Jesus. Now, I don't know if any of you have been left anywhere or left your children anywhere. I have. I, I left a child here one time, but it was like a mile down the road, you know, until I figured it out. So I feel like I'm a little better parent than Mary and Joseph. It's kind of like the bad parents of the World Award, almost. I mean, they went a whole day before they even realized he was missing. And it was three days before they got to him. Seems like a big deal, but, but anyway, they, they left him behind. And you know what it says? It says they assumed that he was in the company. They, they assumed. is That's a dangerous thing. Do you ever assume that Jesus is in your life? because of your family, because you went to church, because you're hanging out with better people? Do we assume that Jesus is there? When Joseph and Mary left Jesus, did they lose their relationship with him or did they lose their fellowship with him? Fellowship Losing, losing fellowship is losing communication, losing interaction, losing interest, losing experience. These are all words that would describe perhaps losing fellowship. As we think about this helmet of salvation, I believe that it's a security. It is a very protective thing that we can wear, and if you are here this morning and you struggle with eternal insecurity, I want to assure you that if you have the helmet of salvation, Satan's not going to take it from you. You're not going to lose it accidentally or unintentionally. I want to read to you from John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And, and I hear him saying there that you can't unintentionally or accidentally lose your relationship with God, but I do believe that we could accidentally or unintentionally lose our fellowship with God. Have you ever stopped having devotions, stopped praying, stopped gathering with believers? Um, because I think that if we accidentally lose our fellowship with God, we may wake up one day and intentionally choose to walk away from our relationship with God. Because while no one can snatch you away from God, the Bible is pretty clear that we have free will and the ability to turn our back on God should we choose to do so. And when we lose fellowship with God is when we begin to leave him behind like Mary and Joseph did. And where was he? He was right where they left him. And he will be right where we leave him. He was about his father's business, and that's still what he's about today. So 
So if you've lost fellowship with God this morning, I want to encourage you to, to go back and to find Him where you left Him. And if you're here this morning and you don't have the helmet of salvation, I want to encourage you to get one. Because the rocks and the wiles of the devil are coming faster and faster and more and more, it feels. If you don't have a helmet or you're not sure how to get one, talk to me. Talk to someone. Because they're available. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You will have a helmet. So if you've never gotten a helmet, get one today. If you have a helmet, but it's tied on your belt, or home in the closet, put it on. Get it on your head. Allow it to protect your mind, to protect your thoughts, to give you daily victory over Satan. Put it on and live and fight confidently, knowing who you're fighting for, knowing why you're fighting, and live victoriously. Let's kneel in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause before you today. Thank you for another day in your house. Thank you for your word and for this opportunity that that we've been given once again, that we so often take for granted to hear from your word and from your through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would continue to speak um, as we go forward this week. Lord, that it would bring words and truth to us. And Lord, that we would listen to it. Um, And the little decisions that we make in life, that we would be attentive to your heart, to what you would have us to do. Lord, I just pray that we would feed on truth, that we would feed on things that bring life and encouragement and blessing. Lord, that we would wear this armor, all of it, but that the helmet of salvation would, give, would just protect our minds and our thoughts to give us purity and confidence in this life that we live, knowing that we are loved by you and that we belong to you and that you will lead us each step of the way and that you are going before us in this battle. Just pray you would go with us today, that we would honor you in all that we say and do. We pray for those who weren't able to make it, make it this morning, uh, those who are feeling ill, and we just pray for the older ones of our congregation, for Ivan and Bonnie and Rollin and Pat and Jerry and Beer, and Lord, just pray that you would be in their in their presence, um, just give them strength today for the challenges that they face. Give them comfort, and you as the great physician and the the great comforter, Lord, we know you can provide for them. Just thank you for.
for each of them and their testimony of faithfulness in life. Just go with us today, we pray. And just also want to pray for Brad and Crystal and pray that you would continue to give them strength as they minister for you. Lord, just may your name be exalted through their life. And we also pray for Jayla today as she ministers. Lord, just pray that you would be exalted through her time there as well. And just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.